بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد. So today is the last day, inshallah Taala, of module one. But the exam for module one, as is stated on the website, will be next week at the beginning of module two. And that's because if we held the exam at the same time as the class, there would be two problems. Number one, I'm either forced not to include what we learn in week four in the exam, or you have to do instant memorization and revision, where you have to do the class and immediately do the exam based on what you did in the class without revising. So I think neither of those work very well. So what we've basically decided to do is that the exam will be held at the beginning of module two. Now I'm gonna announce a little bit more about module two later on, but just to tell you inshallah that there will be a few changes. The basic layout to the module will be very similar. We will be focusing on Again, one module of Aqeedah and two modules relating to Usul al-Fiqh and Al-Qawaid al-Fiqhiyyah. Which I'm very excited about because they're very interesting topic for the student. It's one of the most, I think, the most interesting topics for the student because it gives you the tools that the scholars use to be able to extract the halal and the haram from the texts. So I think it's extremely important and interesting. But one of the things we have committed to doing in term two is slowing down, module two, and slowing down. And that's because when we started this course, we originally planned for the course to be four modules. And so I had a, a set of material that I wanted to cover in those uh, four modules which required me to squeeze the, the content quite a lot. Uh, however, since we now have eight modules and not four, uh, this is something that was decided quite late on in the course, like quite late before we started, so I didn't have time to, to really change the plan. We do have more time to spread things out. So previously, I was going to do usul al-fiqh, and some of fiqh al-madahib in one term. And now we've decided not to do that. We will focus exclusively on one topic in aqeedah and one topic or two topics in usul al-fiqh. Inshallah, uh, we'll do this uh, exclusively in, in module two, leaving module three. Now there are a few elements about module two that you'll have to be aware of. Those announcements will probably be made at the end while we wait for everybody to come. There are a few things to be aware of, inshallah. Uh, firstly, we will be starting immediately, and that is because uh, I have uh, some leave booked, uh, as do many people in the summer. And if we don't start immediately, there is also a chance that we will not be able to complete the module before lots of people start going on, on leave, inshallah. Uh, also, we'll make an announcement regarding Ramadan, but at the moment, the working plan is that we will have classes in the first two weeks of Ramadan. 
And that's because in the first two weeks, there is no Qiyam al-Layl. Except for what people do personally and privately, there is no Qiyam al-Layl in the Masjid. And also, if we don't use those two weeks, we will also again have a problem with finishing the module on time and lots of people taking annual leave. However, we won't have any classes in the last two weeks of Ramadan because clearly that's a time when a lot of people are praying Qiyam al-Layl and it's extremely difficult then to ask you to stay up all night and then come for Fajr and stay up all day as well. Uh, but I think that bear, bearing in mind the classes on a Friday, it's quite doable in the first two weeks of Ramadan, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, but further announcements will be made on that. That's the working plan at the moment, subject to change, of course. But at the moment, the working plan is that we will start immediately from next week. And we will have probably the first, I need, it, it might end up being three lessons or two lessons, but it's two weeks depending on when Ramadan starts. In Ramadan and, and the topic will begin with Aqeedah again because I believe that personally every student should be an expert in Aqeedah you can't afford to be jahil or ignorant on the topic of Aqeedah at all it doesn't matter if your specialization is tafsir or calligraphy and if you're if you're specialized in, in calligraphy you need to be an expert in Aqeedah and if even if the only thing you do is just write out Arabic letters, you know, like this is an, a fundamental, essential part of every Muslim. Uh, and so we're going to give it like almost every module has an Aqeedah module in it. Uh, and then inshallah ta'ala we'll move on to, uh, as we progress through the course, to usul al-fiqh, inshallah ta'ala and al-qawaid al-fiqhiyah. So that's coming up. Uh, the exam, as we said, will be held next week for this this final exam and you'll receive your results for your previous exam before that time because generally we commit to giving you uh, we commit to giving you your results prior to sitting the the next exam inshallah ta'ala there'll also be some uh, an assignment some sort of assignment or practical task to do it will probably differ somewhat from the last one that you were given because we will not give you the same thing every time, something a little bit different, inshallah. And that will be announced at the beginning of module two, inshallah ta'ala. So today, we're going to be doing both tafsir al-Sa'di and tafsir ibn Kathir. And we're going to be looking at Surah al-Ma'idah. And uh, Surah al-Ma'idah was the surah that we were assigned for tafsir in the Jami'a Islamiyah, bearing in mind that in the Jami'a Islamiyah, in the Islamic University of Medina, if you do not go to the faculty of Qur'an, then the tafsir that you do is limited. Except what you do privately. Privately, you could finish the whole Qur'an, but in terms of the university syllabus, if you don't finish, if you don't go to the faculty of Qur'an, then your tafsir is limited to certain... Uh, certain surahs and uh, the surah that we were we were given different parts I mean I think we were given surah al-nisa and surah al-ma'idah but surah al-ma'idah presents an, a really different uh, uh, topic and a different theme to what we had done uh, previously from surah al-fatiha and that's because it is madaniyyah. 
it was revealed during the time that the Prophet was living in Medina. And that means that the general differences you can see, the ayat are much longer. The ayat in the surah Makkiyah are much shorter. So the Makkan surahs, the ayahs are shorter. In the Makkan surahs, there is almost no halal and haram. Not no halal and haram, but almost no halal and haram. The vast majority of the content, a 95% plus of the surahs that are Makkiyah, is Tawheed and Aqeedah and the basics of Iman. And we know that the Prophet ﷺ for somewhere in the region of 10 years from the beginning of his prophethood taught nothing but Aqeedah, taught nothing but Tawheed and Iman. And then the Salah was uh, revealed and so on. And he towards the latter part of Makkah. And during his stay in Makkah, nothing other than the Salah, and after the Salah, nothing other than the Salah was revealed from the major actions of Islam. All of the major shara'ir of Islam, the zakah and the hajj, and all of the, yani, the rest, they were revealed while the Prophet ﷺ was in Medina. So what you see about the Madani surahs is that they have long ayat they are full of ahkam halal and haram and fiqh what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do and things to do with marriage and things to do with covering and things to do with zakah laws and legislation and of course they still contain aqidah they still contain tawheed but now the focus has changed. It's that the Muslims have developed that, that Iman and that belief in Allah. And now they're ready to accept the Halal and the Haram. And this is an excellent or has an excellent lesson in it for us ourselves in Da'wah. And that is not that we ignore the Halal and the Haram. But that for a person to be able to embrace the Halal and the Haram, they have to have that basic belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and that's why generally if you see somebody you see see someone who's not practicing at all and they're struggling they're not praying and uh, they're not fasting they're not making the hajj and a person in this situation if they're doing that then what do we begin with the first thing we need to do is to make sure there is an attachment in their heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And once we have that attachment, they will be willing and ready to embrace those commands. Now we still tell them to pray from the first minute. We still tell them the first time someone comes to you and says, I'm not praying. You don't say, okay, keep not praying for a week while I teach you tawheed. We tell them to pray right away. But we recognize that that command will somewhat fall upon deaf ears unless it is accompanied by getting them to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and making them want to worship Allah based on the knowledge that they have of Him. And so the methodology is still valid even though we don't have the option in our time of tadarruj. We don't have the option of saying to somebody, drink a little bit of alcohol this week and a little bit less next week and then don't drink alcohol at all in the third week. We don't have any, the option to do that. 
but we still have the option to follow the general methodology of giving that focus upon aqidah and tawheed and small ayat, simple messages about belief in Allah and belief in al-yawm al-akhir and then building people up to the level where they can understand the more complex rules and regulations and that's why when a lady comes to you and says I don't I struggle with wearing hijab or I I don't see the benefit in wearing hijab or I find hijab to be a struggle you have to recognize the reason she says that is because of a weakness of tawheed not a weakness of understanding the issue of the hijab you can explain the hijab to a hundred times she will not get it until that tawheed is there that concept that I'm willing to sacrifice for Allah, that Allah knows best what is best for me. So we tell her and we give her the reasons to wear the hijab and so on. But we also recognize that the biggest sickness in there is a sickness related to a tawheed. And so when we correct that, first of all, that gives then a chance for people to be more receptive to the bigger and more complicated rulings that exist uh, in Islam. So once again, we're going to begin with uh, tafsir al-Sa'di and we probably will only cover two or three ayat maybe not even that because the ayat in Surah Al-Ma'idah are long but I want you to recognize again the contrast in what's available to you a lot of people said we didn't get tafsir ibn Kathir maybe that's my explanation maybe it wasn't slow enough uh, but also you'll see that there's a difference when you want a general idea of what the surah means dip into a small Tafsir. Read the, the meaning of the surah in, in, in the Muhsin Khan translation of the Quran. Go to Tafsir al-Sa'di. Go to one of the, the smaller books of Tafsir. You'll get a good idea of what the ayah means. But if you really want the detail and you want to know more about differences of opinion and more about rulings and more about the reason it was revealed and the different ways of recitation, you're not going to find that in a summarized book of tafsir. So you're going to go to something like Ibn Kathir, where it is partially summarized. Anywhere Ibn Kathir is partially summarized, meaning that Ibn Kathir has not given you the full tafsir, which you might find in a tabari or something like that, but he's given you a lot of the tafsir. Uh, and again, if you read a summary of Ibn Kathir, then you're going to read like you're going to get in the summary of Ibn Kathir even more, uh, you know, see, it becomes even shorter. So you have even more sort of, it's even easier to approach a summary of Ibn Kathir than it is to approach the full, the full version. So tafsir uh, of Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said after Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu awfu bil-uqood. وحلت لكم بهيمة الأنعام إلا ما يتلى عليكم غير محل الصيد وغير محل الصيد وأنتم حرم إن الله يحكم ما يريد. Let's first of all just dip briefly, if I can from here, into the the translation that is given to us by. Muhsin Khan because this at least will give us an opportunity to understand the basic uh, understanding of the ayah 
يا أيها الذين آمنوا أوفوا بالعقود أحلت لكم بهيمة الأنعام إلا ما يتلى عليكم غير محل الصيد وأنتم حرم إن الله يحكم ما يريد. And we switch it to Mohsen Khan and see what it says. Okay. O you who believe. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu. O you who believe. Fulfill your obligations. Lawful to you in food are all the beasts of cattle except that which will be announced to you. And gain. Being unlawful when you assume ihram for hajj or umrah. Indeed, Allah commands that which He wills. So straight away you see a big difference between the Makki and the Madani. Between short, simple, and between now, more complicated. There is a famous narration regarding this ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah. That there was a particular individual who claimed to be able to produce something like the Qur'an. And he came to be able to produce a surah like the Qur'an. So he took this challenge and he went to his home and he started to produce something that he could present to the people and say, this is the same as the Qur'an. And I am able to make something like the Qur'an. So he said, I opened the Mus'haf for inspiration of where to start. And he opened it upon Surah Al-Ma'idah, the first ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah. And before he reached the end of the ayah, he realized it was impossible to produce anything like this Qur'an, to bring anything like this Qur'an forward. Because in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala covers the entire religion of Islam in an ayah. In fact, in a single statement, Ya amanu awfu bil The entire religion of Islam can be summarized by this. Then Allah made some things halal, and He made some things haram, and He made some exceptions. Then He informed about Himself, and what He does, and His names and attributes and characteristics, and that is in a single ayah. So how about trying to produce a surah like this? It's not possible. So He came back and He announced to the people that He was unable to produce something like the Qur'an. Because of this first ayah that he read from Surah Al-Ma'idah. So we've understood, O you who believe. There's just the English translation, we haven't got to the tafsir yet. Fulfill your obligations. Lawful to you, so Allah is now going to say, what is lawful, what is halal. Uhillat lakum bahimatul an'am. Lawful for you are grazing livestock, yani cattle. Illa ma yutla alaykum. Except that which will be recited to you. I in this surah, there will be some things recited to you that are not halal for you from those, from those cattle. There will be some things recited to you in this surah that are not halal. So they will be an exception to the rule. Apart from, apart from hunting game, any hunting animals while you are in a state of ihram. Indeed, Allah 
commands or Allah ordains whatever he wants. We just read you the Sahih International Translation also, which even though it is usually less accurate in terms of tafsir, but it's also easier to understand. O you who have believed to fill all contracts, lawful for you are the animals of grazing livestock, except that which is recited to you in this Quran, hunting not being permitted while you are in a state of ihram. Indeed, Allah ordains what he intends. Now, first of all, you should be aware of something important when you're using a book of tafsir. And that is that if you want the fullest tafsir of a meaning of, a, of some words in the Quran, you have to go to the first instance of it. So if you wanted the most compre comprehensive discussion of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, you would find it at the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha. And when you come to Surah uh, An-Naml, you will not find such a comprehensive discussion of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim as you did back in the in the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha. So sometimes you look for a tafsir and you're like, Subhanallah, Ibn Kathir didn't even give me a tafsir of it. When in reality he did, but he gave it in the first instance. So don't expect, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, to have a comprehensive tafsir here. But expect the first time that Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu is used in the Quran, you go back, you find the first time that Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu is mentioned in the Quran, and there you will find more, uh, a more comprehensive discussion of the meaning. So that's an important point to note about tafsir. As sometimes you look for a tafsir, you don't find it. But if you were to search for those words in the Quran and look at the first time those words come, then from there you could probably find more tafsir uh, regarding it. However, a Sa'di will usually repeat some basic points. Maybe, maybe the first time it's mentioned, you would have two paragraphs and then you'll have like a line each time. Ya ayyuhalladheena aman. And Imam Sa'di he said, This is a command from Allah the Exalted to His believing servants, informing them that one of the things that is required by Iman is to fulfill obligations. So notice here, he doesn't talk too much about Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, but he just gives a, an indication to the meaning. That Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, when it comes in the Quran, is a call to those who believe. Allah Azza wa Jal is calling you by your iman. And that means that what followed, as is narrated from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma and others, that what follows will be something extremely important. Whenever you hear, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, you recognize that your Lord is calling you by your iman. And He is not only calling you by your iman, but is about to follow with either a significant command or a significant prohibition or a significant piece of information. 
and usually a command or a prohibition. All you who believe, do not do this. All you who believe, do this. This is a command. And one of the things that we learn from this command is that this command is from those things which are necessitated by Iman. Meaning, if you aspire to have Iman, if you aspire to have Iman, then you should aspire to follow this command. And the command is Al-Wafa. Al-Wafa, it means fulfillment, right? to fulfill something. And Al-Uqud is obviously the plural of Aqt of an agreement or a promise or a contract he said this is from what is necessitated by iman to fulfill your obligations by completing them and finishing them and not by breaking them or being deficient in them so Imam al-Sa'di tells you there is two things we aim for and two things we avoid. Number one, we aim to, to do them in the most perfect way. Ikmal, we aim to do them in the most perfect way. Not just to fulfill you know, the minimum or halfway, but to fulfill all of the obligations that we have, that we have made. And we aim to fulfill them to the maximum extent and to the, in terms of that we don't, uh, we don't break them and we don't end up falling short in them. There are two things that we avoid. One is a naqt. A naqt is breaking the contract, breaking the promise, breaking the agreement. And a naqs, only one dot difference. A naqt with a dot and a naqs. And a naqs is to be deficient in them. You're not like, you haven't broken it, but you haven't fulfilled it in the way that you promised you would fulfill it. And he says, and this statement is comprehensive. And this statement is comprehensive. In dealing with the agreements between a servant and his Lord such as remaining steadfast in worship of him alone and fulfilling that worship in the most absolute sense and not taking anything away from his rights as well as those that are between the servant and between the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa including his obedience and following him and those which are between him and between his parents and his relatives by being good to them and keeping good ties with them and not cutting off from them and those that are between him and his companions 
by fulfilling the conditions and the rights of companionship in times of richness and times of poverty. And those that are between him and the rest of his, uh, of, of Allah's creation, in terms of uqud al-mu'amalat, the contracts and agreements of marriage and business and trade and employment and renting and all of these other things that we have contracts uh, for. He said like selling and renting and similar things. And the contracts that exist in, in, a, voluntarily, in a voluntary nature, I mean, in terms of voluntary charity, like giving gifts and similar. Rather, it includes fulfilling the rights of the Muslims, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala established between them when he said, ikhwa. The, the believers are nothing but brothers. By supporting them in the truth, and cooperating with them and bringing about or bringing about closeness among the believers and not cutting off from the Muslims. So this command is comprehensive in all of the fundamental principles of the religion and all of the secondary and the roots and the branches like they say. Al-usul wal furu'a. Everything which is fundamental to Islam and everything which is secondary, which grows from that. Every single one of those things is entered in the statement, Al-Uqud, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded you to fulfill. And that is why the scholars of tafsir say that this ayah contains the whole of Islam. This statement, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, awfu bil-Uqud. Fulfill your obligations. Because you have obligations between you and Allah. And you have obligations between you and the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And you have obligations between you and your parents. And you have obligations between you and your neighbors. And between you and your friends and companions. And you have obligations between you and the rest of the Muslims. Rather, you have obligations between you and the non-Muslims. And Allah Azza wa Jal commanded you to fulfill those obligations, not only to fulfill them, but to fulfill them completely. Because you don't say wafa unless somebody completes it absolutely in every way. Because al-wafa is to absolutely fulfill those conditions and those obligations. And if somebody fulfills half of it or a bit of it, you don't say that he is and you often that he has really fulfilled his obligations. So we have to understand that the whole of the religion of Islam comes within this ayah. And you have to try to remember the points that Imam Sa'di mentions under each one, what are the rights of Allah and the rights of the Prophet and the rights of the parents and the rights of the companions and the rights of the general Muslims. All of these are found within the statement, Ya amanu, Fulfill your obligations. And the greatest of those obligations is al-Tawheed and al-Ubudiyya lillahi subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, to dedicate every single act of worship to Him, and to refrain from giving one or more of His rights to anyone or anything else. This is the greatest obligation. And that's why even these surahs that deal with halal and haram, they start with aqidah and tawheed. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as Imam Sa'di says, He says, as a grace to His servants, Uhillat lakum. Uhillat lakum. Halal for you. Al Imam Sa'di here wants to highlight what is the meaning of for you. He says, for you, meaning for your sake and as a mercy to you. Meaning that the fact that Allah has made these things halal, the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made these things halal is for our benefit and as a mercy to us that He has made them halal. Because if Allah willed, He would have made all of the animals haram for us. Or He would have made difficulty for us like He made for the Yahud. And in reality, the Yahud, they made difficulty for themselves. The Jews made difficulty for themselves, Wallah. Because they kept on questioning and asking and probing and being awkward about things until Allah made many of the foods that were halal for them haram. And until this day, kosher food regulations remain the most complex and difficult to fulfill of any religious food requirements because they made that upon themselves they brought that as a punishment upon themselves that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade to them some of the things that were halal to them before and some of the things that are halal and were made halal after them by Isa ibn Maryam السلام, and by our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam subhanallah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Lakum li ajlikum. For you. I'm doing this as a blessing, as a kindness to you. As a mercy to you. That I have made halal bahimatul an'am. Al Imam al Sa'di says, including camels, cows, and sheep. Camels, cows, and sheep, and by sheep we mean the the category of of sheep, yani sheep and lambs and goats and you know those that are similar to them, camels, cows, and uh, and sheep. And Imam Sa'di said, in fact, it may well be included in that that even the wild animals of these among them, yani bahimatul an'am, generally refer to the, uh, the domesticated cattle. Bahimatul an'am, generally refer to domesticated cattle, whether camels or cows or uh, sheep and the likes. However, he said, Rather, it may, be, it may be the case, and this is indicating that there may be some difference of opinion in this. Actually, there may not be a difference of opinion in the outcome. 
I don't think there's a difference of opinion in the fact that you are allowed to eat, for example, wild uh, cows or wild sheep or something like or mountain goats or something like that. But there may be a difference of opinion as to whether this ayah includes them or doesn't include them. And are they included in this ayah or are they included elsewhere? So he says, in fact, it may be that included in this ayah are even the wild animals among them. Including uh, which are um, kind of uh, it's not like a kind of lizard but I don't know what the name for it is. Uh, and uh, also zebras. Yani al-humar, humar al-wahshi. And yeah, the, the like uh, zebras or these kind of wild, uh, wild donkeys and things like this. And similar animals that are included in those that are hunted. Because they hunt these different animals. And some of the Sahaba use this ayah. as an evidence for the permissibility of eating the calf which dies in the womb of its mother as long as it is slaughtered so he's giving some just little bit of little bit of fiqh in there not too much but he's saying that some of the Sahaba used this ayah لَكُمْ بَهِيمَةُ الْأَنْعَامِ For the permissibility of eating the calf that dies in the womb of its mother as long as it is slaughtered as soon as it is, as soon as it is given birth to. إِلَّا مَا يُتْلَى عَلَيْكُمْ Except that which is narrated or which is recited to you meaning that which is recited to you that it is haram Imam Sa'di said meaning that which is recited to you that it is haram included in this is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَيْتَةُ وَالدَّمْ وَلَحْمُ الْخِنْزِيرُ until the end of the ayah haram to you is the dead animal and blood and the meat of a pig until the end of the ayah he said because these things mentioned even though they are from bahimatul an'am they are haram so it is like now this is where we have to take a, a general benefit that Allah Azza wa gave us a general permissibility. Halal for you is Bahimatul An'am. The cattle, the cows and the camels and the sheep. These are halal for you. Illa ma yutla But there is an exception. And even there may be an exception to the exception. Like in the case of Adam. In the hadith, that two dead things have been made halal to us and two types of blood have been made halal to us. 
So even there may be an exception to the exception. So the dead uh, fish and the dead locusts are halal for us. And likewise, the kebid, uh, the, the, uh, the liver, which has been made, even though it is, it is like a congealed blood, it has been made uh, halal to us as well. So you see here that there is a general ruling. Everything from Bahimatul An'am is halal for you, except what is recited to you. This is a clear evidence also for the fact that the Quran has to be taken as a whole. Not one ayah and then you go off and eat a, a pig because Allah said, Uhillat lakum Bahimatul An'am. Illa ma Meaning elsewhere in the Quran, there will be things from Bahimatul An'am that you are not allowed to eat. And then there will be exceptions to the exception. For example, you're told you must not eat anything dead. However, it's halal for you to eat uh, a fish that is found dead floating on the top of the sea. And it's halal for you to eat uh, the locust that is, is killed that way and found dead and it is not like, it's not uh, slaughtered or cut in any way. So there are some exceptions to that rule. The blood which is still inside of the animal after its neck has been cut and the blood has been spilt, that blood is halal for you. If you particularly like having rare steaks, the blood within the steak is not haram for you. Some people, they, they don't eat, for example, rare steaks, like rare steak, because they find that the, they find it's like I'm eating blood. The blood comes out. It's not always blood. It's actually a fluid from the muscle. But the, in any case, any, like, it resembles blood that comes out from the, from, the, from the meat. This is halal for you. Because the Prophet ﷺ excused the blood which is left within the animal after the blood has been drained. You'll not be able to drain every single amount of blood, but the throat has been cut and the blood has been drained. And what is left is inside of the meat. When you cut the meat, there is blood inside of the meat still. And this is halal. So this is an exception to the, to the exception. Al-Imam al-Sa'di, he said, since the permissibility of eating the cattle is general in every situation and every time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made an exception with regard to hunting in the state of ihram. Because Allah had made a general statement of permissibility. And as we said, some of the scholars said about this statement, it includes the wild animals. It includes wild animals. And they took from that the fact that Allah said, غَيْرَ مُحِلِّ الصَّيْدِ غَيْرَ مُحِلِّ الصَّيْدِ indicates that these, these hunted animals are a part of the first permissibility. Because Allah said, other than, other than the hunted animals. Other than the hunted animals. Meaning that the hunted animals are a part of the first statement of permissibility. And since Allah had said generally, أُحِلَّتْ لَكُمْ بَهِيمَةُ الْأَنْعَامِ Allah then informed us that there is a specific time and a specific circumstance in which some of those animals are not halal. 
and that is the hunting of the wild, those wild animals while you are in a state of ihram. So this is one of the times when it is not halal to eat some of those animals. It is halal to eat the domesticated ones. That is the, you know, the, the, uh, the sheep that you took with you, that is your domesticated sheep. But if you see a wild something, a wild goat or a wild donkey, like a, something similar to a zebra, and you are in the state of ihram, then the previous ruling that it is halal for you is no longer applicable. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, غَيْرَ مُحِلِّ الصَّيْدِ وَأَنْتُمْ So not allowed for you is to hunt wild animals while you are in a state of, of ihram. Noting that there is an exception to this as well. And the exception to this as well is fishing. Because fishing is considered to be, in Arabic, Sayyid. We call it Sayyid al-Bahr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that it is halal for us to fish in Ihram. Even though fishing is a kind of hunting wild animals. And the same word is used as Sayyid. Because at the end of the day, you are catching a wild animal that is not being raised by you and you know, you have not raised it up from a small animal and you have not like been feeding it for the purpose of slaughter. You are catching a wild animal. And that it is halal to fish. As a provision for you and a provision for the journey. As we find in Surat. So he said, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made a general permission to eat this meat in every circumstance and every time, he then made an exception to that, which is the situation while you're in the state of ihram, and a specific category of those animals, which, is the wild, which are the wild animals that are hunted. Meaning, Cattle are permissible for you at any time. Except at the time when you are and except with two, uh, the time when two characteristics apply. The first is that you are in a state of ihram and the second is that you are hunting. And you're hunting in a state of ihram. He says, in ihram and in the haram as well. In ihram and in the haram. Because in the haram, in Mecca, and the haram the Prophet made in Al-Madina, it's not permissible also to hunt uh, animals 
in this time. So he mentions this one. He says, Fi hal al-ihram wa fil haram. And in the situation of being in ihram and in the situation of being in the in the haram. For this is not permissible for you if it is hunted, if it is a a hunted animal. If it is a hunted animal. He said, and he defines what is a hunted animal. He says, it is an animal which is eaten and wild. He mentions this condition, that it is an animal which is eaten and an animal which is wild. Meaning, whatever Allah Azza wa Jal wants to legislate, He legislates it in accordance with His wisdom. And notice how He links here legislation and wisdom, and the two come from a, the same root. Al Hukum wal Hikmah. Both come from the same, the same original root. So he said that whenever Allah the Exalted wants to legislate a legislation, he wants to yahkum bihukum, he wants to legislate something, he does so in accordance with his wisdom. As he had commanded you to fulfill your obligations in order to achieve that which will benefit you and in order to keep away from you that which will harm you. And he made permissible for you the cattle as a mercy for you. And he made haram for you that which he has made an exception. Whether it be the dead animal or something similar to that. In order to protect you and in order to give you honor and respect. So he gives two reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made haram those things that he made haram. First of all, to protect you. To protect you from something which is going to cause you a sickness or an illness. Or something which is going to cause you to have some problems come about because of it. Or some uncleanliness to come about because of it. And likewise, ihtirama. As a res to, sh to give you some respect. I mean, what do you think if you see somebody eating from the carcass of a dead animal on the side of the road? Do you feel that person has... Respect that person is, you know, mashallah, a very respectful person that you see them eating from the, a dead animal covered in flies on the side of the road. No, it's not respectful. It's not honorable. So Allah wants to protect you from illnesses and He wants to honor you. Okay, so why did He make it haram to hunt in ihram then? Imam al-Sa'di said, He made it haram to hunt in ihram in order to show respect for ihram and for the rights of hajj and in order to show the respect for the ihram and for the rights of the hajj so this is the summary of the first ayah i want to do at least the second ayah uh,
And then I think we will not have time after the second ayah except just to touch Ibn Kathir a little bit just so we can get some idea of some of the differences inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu la tuhillu sha'ir Allah wala shahr al-haram wala al-hadiyya wala al-qala'id wala amin al-bayt al-haram yabtaguna fadlan min rabbihim wa ridwana wa idha halaltum fastadu wala yajrimannakum shana'anu qawmin an saddukum عن المسجد الحرام أن تعتدوا وتعاونوا على البر والتقوى ولا تعاونوا على الإثم والعدوان واتقوا الله إن الله شديد العقاب الإمام السعدي says يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا تحلوا شاعر الله let's first just take the translation O you who believe do not violate the sanctity of the symbols of Allah, nor of the sacred month, nor of the animals brought for sacrifice, nor the garlanded people animals, nor the people coming to the sacred house of Makkah seeking bounty and good pleasure of their Lord. But when you finish the ihram, you may hunt. And do not let the hatred of some people stop you in stopping you from the Masjid al-Haram lead you to transgress against them. Help each other in al-birr wa taqwa. He says virtue, comma, righteousness and piety. But do not help each other in sin and transgression and fear Allah. Indeed, Allah is severe in punishment. And Imam Sa'di, he says, and I'm going to go through it a little bit quicker because the ayah is long and we want to get on also to Ibn Kathir. So just a little bit quickly. Ya amanu. Allah again calls us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again calls us by the call of Iman. La tuhillu. Now it's a now it is a prohibition. Do not violate Sha'air Allah, meaning the sacred symbols or the sacred acts that Allah Azza wa Jal has commanded you to to give a great status to. There are some things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us to give great status to. And ta'zeem to these things. And these are known as asha'ir, the symbols, the, the, the major symbols. So let's see what he says about them. Meaning those things, those sacred things which he commanded you to show reverence to. And not doing them and forbidding this covers forbidding you from doing them and forbidding you from believing them to be halal. For every time you are forbidden from something in the Quran, it forbids you from doing it and it forbids you from believing it to be permissible. And in reality, believing something to be permissible is worse than doing it. Because once you know something is haram and believe it to be permissible, you leave Islam, even if you never do it. And that is why a person who says it is okay for Muslims to drink alcohol, but never drinks it in his life is kafir. And the person who says it's not okay to drink alcohol, but I drink it is Muslim. So the issue of i'tiqad of what we call al-istihlal, believing something to be halal, is a major issue in Islam. And the scholars mention it in Bab al-Ridda, in the chapter of apostasy, 
Because for you to know something is haram and then to say that it is halal or to know that something is halal and say that it is haram and especially for you to know something is haram and say it is halal I know that Allah said don't do it and then say it's halal not the ones who have a doubt or they don't fully understand but the one who knows fine well that Allah Azza wa Jal made it haram and he says it's halal even if he never does it in his life he's not a Muslim because he rejected the Quran and he rejected the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala openly and whoever disbelieves in one ayah it is as if he has disbelieved in the whole of the Quran so this issue of i'tiqad is serious it's belief or istihlal believing that something haram is halal is a serious issue of course there is there are rules to that which we've spoken about earlier like the one who is ignorant the one who doesn't fully understand the ruling the one who has been confused by some imam or sheikh who told him it was halal and he got confused about it this one is an exception to the rule but the one who knows for a fact that allah made something haram and then he says it's not haram for me like those people who say I don't have to pray. Allah has exempted me from praying. Some of these people who call themselves awliya, they say that Allah has revealed to me that I don't have to pray anymore. Even if he prays after that, he's not a Muslim. If he believes that it is permissible and halal to abandon the prayer. And this is by consensus of the former dahib in all of the books of fiqh, that the one who says, I don't have to pray, even if he prays, is not a Muslim. But the one who says, I have to pray, and then maybe he misses, this is where they differ. Is he a Muslim or not? The one who says, I know you have to give zakah in Islam, but I don't give zakah, this one is a Muslim. And the one who says, I don't believe there's such a thing in Islam as zakah, even if he gives the zakah, he's not a Muslim. So this is a serious issue that the, the prohibit, prohibitions in the Quran cover not only not doing it but not believing it to be halal. He says, this includes those things which are forbidden in ihram. So what is forbidden in ihram? Many things like getting married and, have, and arranging a marriage and cutting your nails and your hair and wearing perfume and wearing stitched clothing and so on for men and so on and so forth. And it includes in the things which are haram in the haram, like cutting down the natural trees. And it is haram to cut down an, uh, a natural uh, tree that grows in the haram. Now that means a tree that grows naturally, not one that is planted by people. If a person plants a tree, he can move the tree inside of, if he plants a tree outside his house in Makkah, he can move the tree or cut down the tree, there is no issue with that. But if there is a tree that grows naturally, it's not permissible for him to move it. And it's not permissible for him to kill any animal apart from al-fawasiq, the animals that cause harm, or cause disease to spread among the Muslims like rats and uh, scorpions and so on, snakes, they can be killed in the haram. Outside of that, nothing can be, nothing can be killed in the, in the haram in Makkah and so on. 
And it includes in that what Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned, wala shahr al-haram. Nor should they violate the sanctity of the sacred months. So now this is an example of tafsir al-Quran, bil-Quran. Because now Imam Sa'di is saying that one of the sha'air, one of the symbols, what are the symbols? He said the symbols are those things which are haram in ihram, and those things which are haram in the haram, and those things which Allah then mentioned in the ayah. And it includes all of the sha'air. I mean, the ayah is generally includes all of the major symbols of Islam. But in this context, in the context of the ayah, which particular symbols are, are given most evidence for in the tafsir? The tafsir is talking about the haram and the ihram. And then goes on, the ayah itself goes on to mention uh, the issue of uh, the sacred months and so on. So this is an example of the, the symbols that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking of in the ayah. وَلَا الشَّهْرَ الْحَرَامِ Nor the sacred months. Meaning do not defile the sacred months by fighting in them or doing any other kind of oppression in them. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, إِنَّ عِدَّةَ الشُّهُورِ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ اثْنَا عَشَرَ شَهْرًا فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ يَوْمَ خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ مِنْهَا أَرْبَعَةٌ حُرُمْ ذَلِكَ الدِّينُ الْقَيِّمْ فَلَا تَظْلِمُوا فِيهِنَّ أَنفُسَكُمْ Again, tafsir al-Qur'an bil-Qur'an. Tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. He says, what is the proof for this? Allah said in Surah At-Tawbah, indeed the number of months in the sight of Allah are 12 months. In the book of Allah, the day that he created the heavens and the earth. From them are four which are sacred. This is the upright religion, so do not oppress yourselves in them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade killing and fighting and war and oppression against others, particularly uh, in the sacred months. He said, and the majority of the scholars are of the opinion that fighting in the sacred months is abrogated. By the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, فَإِذَا سَلَخَ الْأَشْهُرُ الْحُرُمْ ثَقْتُ الْمُشْرِكِينَ حَيْثُ وَجَدْتُمُوهُمْ When the sacred months have finished, then fight or then kill the polytheists wherever you find them. And other ayat which command the killing or command fighting against the disbelievers in general. And the punishments which uh, speak about the one who refrains from fighting them. And so he's now mentioning an opinion that the majority are of the opinion that this, uh, that this ayah is uh, abrogated. Now, are we going to find any detail in Tafsir al-Sa'di about that? We're not going to find any detail about that. What is the correct opinion? Is it allowed to fight in the sacred months or not allowed to fight in the sacred months? Has it been abrogated? Is it now the case that we are allowed to fight in the sacred months? Or is it the case that and the only thing which is now forbidden in the sacred months is oppression of others? Or is it the case that the sacred months remain forbidden to fight in? We're not going to find this in Tafsir al-Sa'di. He gives us 
just a, an indication that there is a disagreement over it and says the majority are of the opinion that it is abrogated. In Ibn Kathir, we're going to find much more detail who said it, what was their opinion, what was their evidence, what is the correct opinion about it. He goes on to say, He said, this is a particular special type of sacrificial animal. And this is a sacrificial animal that has some sort of, uh, it has some sort of mark or brand that is put upon its neck to make clear that that animal is a sacrificial animal. Meaning that that animal is being brought to sacrifice in the, in the, uh, in the haram. So the animal would have a particular kind of symbol or a particular kind of mark made on it so the people would know that this animal is dedicated solely for sacrifice. These are known as al-qala'id. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also forbade us from violating the sanctity of the qala'id by killing them before they reach their place of sacrifice. Because this encourages people to this encourages people to give in sacrifice and it teaches the people uh, the sunnah and it allows the people to know that this is a sacrificial animal so it should be given full respect and honor. And for this reason, marking the animals that are, to be, that are driven to Makkah for sacrifice is a sunnah from the sha'air, from the symbols of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I've not seen how this marking is done. I know it's supposed to be done on the neck. But maybe you could find a picture of it if you looked for it. The al-qala'id. I don't know how much, to, how, to what extent that is still done. But it's a branding or a mark that is made on the neck of the, uh, the animal in order that the people know that this animal is a sacrificial animal, is being taken for the sake of uh, sacrifice. Meaning, not those people who are heading to make pilgrimage in the, in the Bayt al-Haram, to the Bayt al-Haram, to the, to the Kaaba. I mean that we should not harm those people or not violate the sanctity or the respect of those people that are making pilgrimage to Al-Bayt Al-Haram. Meaning that the one who is heading towards this sacred house and he intends to gain thereby also the grace of some business or some halal earnings or he's going there for Hajj and Umrah and Tawaf and praying and others from the acts of worship, then no one is allowed to harm him in any way. Nor are they allowed to, to do anything to, to disgrace him or to lower him in his status. Rather, they have to respect him and they have to revere those people who are visiting Al-Bayt al-Haram. 
whether they are visiting for business and trade or whether they are visiting for Hajj and Umrah and Tawaf. Because Allah said, يَبْتَغُونَ فَضْلًا مِّن رَبِّهِمْ وَرِضْوَانًا Seeking a grace from their Lord, meaning business and profit. And seeking Ridwan, a pleasure from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And included in this command is the command to safeguard the roads that lead to the haram. And to provide safe passage for the, the government who is responsible for the haram, to provide safe passage for the roads which lead to Makkah. So that nobody is in danger of being attacked on the way to, to reach Al-Masjid Al-Haram. And making, you know, really honoring and giving safety and security to those people who intend to go to the Masjid Al-Haram. So that they don't fear for themselves that they will be killed or something small or something less than that will happen to them. And they don't fear that their wealth will be taken by taxes and by uh, banditry and stealing and other things. He said, but this ayah has an exception to it. And this ayah, it is, it is made, it is restricted by another ayah. And that is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, Ya Iyuhaladina Amanu inna mal mushrikuna najas. Falayakarabul masjid al haram Bada Amihim Hada. O you who believe indeed the polytheists are impure. Meaning impure in the heart, not impure in the in the limbs. Their hands are not impure, but their their hearts and their beliefs are impure. So do not allow them to approach the Masjid Al-Haram after this year of theirs. So in this case, even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَلَا آمِينَ الْبَيْتَ Haram," The exception to that are the non-Muslims. They should be prevented from reaching Al-Bayt Al-Haram. They should be prevented from reaching Makkah. As for Medina, there is no ruling that they should be prevented from entering Medina. However, if the Waliul Amr decided to prevent them from Medina for a reason and a maslaha, then that is not haram for him to prevent them. But we do not say that it is a shara'i ruling. The fact that non-Muslims are not allowed in Medina is not a Islamic, yani it's not a, something established in the Quran and the Sunnah. However, the non-Muslims not entering Medina at this time is established by the Waliul Amr, the one in who is responsible for looking after that area has said that I'm going to ban the non-Muslims from visiting Medina because of a benefit that he sees in that, such as preventing them from harming the Muslims in their worship and preventing elements of shirk from entering the city of the Messenger of Allah then he is within his right to do that. Because the Wali Al-Amr can stop whoever he wants from going into a city or going out of a city. But there is no original Islamic ruling to prevent non-Muslims from entering Medina as there is for, as there is for Makkah. Al-Imam al-Sa'di also tells us that the fact that this ayah mentions 
the one seeking Allah's grace and his pleasure, indicates that whoever comes in order to commit sins, uh, and whoever comes to, uh, to stop the people or to cause problems for the people from, uh, from entering Mecca or from performing their rites of Hajj, then this person from the rights of the haram is to stop them entering Mecca. So now some people may say this is a general rule. Anybody can enter Mecca apart from the non-Muslims. Any Muslim. That's not the case. Because Allah said, Therefore those who do not seek the pleasure of Allah, they seek to go to the haram to steal. As is the case in Hajj every year. There are large groups of thieves who come specifically to Mecca to steal from the Hujjaj. Then even if they are Muslim, it is not from the respect of the Haram and the respect of the people making the Hajj to allow them to make the Hajj. And you can even argue that this ayah gives the permissibility of Tanzim, of giving some order and, and rules and regulations about who can and can't go to Hajj. If there is a need for that in terms of public safety and respect of the Haram, and if the large numbers of people would cause a danger to other hujjaj and a danger to the haram, then it is permissible for the waliul amr to restrict the people who go to hajj. And I firmly believe this, even though it's a very controversial issue. And a lot of people talk about how can you stop the people from going to hajj and how can you make a limit. But the reality is nobody is stopped from going to hajj generally who is, uh, this is their first hajj in, in general. But stopping people from going year after year after year in order to safeguard the health and safety of the pilgrims who go to the Hajj is within the ayah. Is within the ayah of respecting. Ya ayyuhalladina amanu la tuhillu Allah. Do not violate the sanctity of Allah's sacred symbols. So if it's necessary to do that by limiting the people who come to Makkah, then there is nothing haram about limiting the people as long as it is done fairly in a way that allows people who want to make their hajj to be able to make their, to be able to make their hajj. Especially if it is done for the sake of safety and for the sake of uh, protecting the, the, the sha'ir of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, protecting the sacred symbols of Allah like the Kaaba and the area surrounding it. And Imam Sa'id, he said, we take this from the statement of Allah and we take this, the, the blocking of people who want to cause trouble from the statement of Allah In Surah Al-Hajj, whoever wishes to cause some oppression or to cause some, I mean, to cause, uh, to defy Allah by oppressing people within it, we will give him a severe punishment. Then, Allah, then uh, Imam Al-Sa'di said, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited us from hunting while we are in ihram, he then said, وَإِذَا حَلَلْتُمْ فَاسْطَادُوا When you have come out of ihram, hunt. Now this is very important in usul al-fiqh. This is a principle of an example where a command may be permissibility and not recommended or not obligatory. So here Allah is not telling you, you must hunt as soon as you come from ihram. Rather the rule is when something is haram and then Allah commands you to do it, 
That command after being told haram and then a command saying do it is a command for permissibility, not a command that it is mustahab or a command that it is wajib. Like the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, فَالْآنَ بَاشِرُوهُنَّ مَا كَتَبَ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ Now you can be intimate with them and seek to have children that which Allah has written for you. I.e. in the night of Ramadan. Because it was prohibited and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it halal. فَالْآنَ بَاشِرُوهُنَّ Now you can be intimate with them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded you to do something after it was haram, meaning that it is now halal, not meaning that it is obligatory or that it is mustahab. Imam al-Sa'di said, when you have come out of your ihram from hajj or umrah and you have exited the haram, it is allowed for you to hunt. And the thing which was haram before has become halal. And he said, وَالْأَمْرُ بَعْدَ التَّحْرِيمِ Uh, whenever you get a command that immediately follows a prohibition for the same thing it returns the ruling back to what it was before so if it was wajib before it becomes wajib again if it was recommended before it becomes recommended again and if it was permissible before it becomes permissible again so what was the ruling of hunting before it was made haram permissible was not mustahab to hunt it was permissible and so it returns to being permissible as it was permissible uh, as it was permissible before Imam al-Sa'di said do not let the fact that some of the people of your of your uh, from their, their enemy and their enmity towards you and their transgression against you prevented you from going to the Masjid al-Haram that you should transgress against them. As you know, in the time of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Muslims were prevented from making Umrah. Now the Muslims have the authority to allow or to prevent the people from making Umrah. Do not let the fact that there were a people who out of their enmity and hatred to you, they prevented you from making Umrah, that you should now transgress against them and fight against them and harm them because of what they did to you before. In order to get revenge from them, because the servant is commanded to stick to the commands of Allah and to remain upon the path of justice. And if someone commits a crime against him or oppresses him or transgresses against him, it is not, for example, permissible for him to lie about the one who lied about him. Nor is it permissible for him to betray the one who betrayed him. And this is a very important principle, extremely important principle, that if someone does something bad to you, it is not allowed for you to then do something haram to them. 
Yes, you may fight against them legally by the rules of Islam. It may be that the Waliul Amr says we're going to fight against these people and this is halal. But it's not allowed for you to do things which Allah made haram for you because these people oppressed you. And wallahi, we are desperately, desperately in need of this ayah in this time. Because there are many, many Muslims, if we take it back to an aqidah point of view and some other issues, current affairs, who advocate committing crimes and slaughter against non-Muslims that Allah Azza wa Jal made haram. Because those people slaughtered our children or our women or our countries. Allah Azza wa Jal explicitly made it haram for you to do haram to someone because they did haram to you. So regardless of what the Yahud or the Nasara or the Americans or anyone else has done to anyone, it is not permissible for you to do haram to them because they did haram to you. And this ayah was revealed regarding the mushrikeen of Makkah. It was not revealed regarding the Muslims. It was revealed regarding the mushrikeen of Makkah. It is not allowed for you to do haram to someone because they did haram to you. So how about doing haram to someone who never did any haram to you? As many of these people advocate. I mean, we should do something to someone who this individual never did anything to us at all. But their people or their country or their I mean, relatives or something did something to us. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us that it is not permissible for us if someone does something haram to us, for us to do haram back to them. Rather we do to them what is allowed within the halal. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَمَنِ اعْتَدَى عَلَيْكُمْ فَاعْتَدُوا عَلَيْهِ بِمِثْلِ مَا اعْتَدَى عَلَيْكُمْ Whoever transgresses against you, then transgress against them with what they transgressed against you with. This ayah has to be understood in the light of this ayah. Meaning that whatever you do back to them has to be within the limit of what is allowed in Islam. Qisas, retribution which is ordered by the court, or fighting them which is legislated by the Waliul Amr, or any one of the things which is allowed for you to do in Islam, or to seek legal redress against them. These things which are allowed for you to do in Islam. And when they are allowed, you still only do to them what they did to you, even within the framework of what is allowed. But if we go into the framework of what is not allowed, then it is not permissible to do haram to someone because of haram that they did to you. And likewise, the issue of justice. Sometimes when we have a hatred for people, like a relative or like a, a person who has done us injustice, so we're unjust to them. We say things about them that are not true. We, you know, they do a good deed and we don't recognize it. We say they just did it in order for this or for that. Don't let the hatred of a people that they prevented you from the Masjid al-Haram and Allah repeats the ayah later on. Do not let a hatred of a people prevent you from being just. In the next ayah later on, Be just. That is closer to being obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then, then at the end of the ayah, he said, meaning help each other in doing albir. And albir is a comprehensive term for everything Allah loves and is pleased with 
from outward and inward actions, whether the rights of Allah or the rights of mankind. So al-birr is a comprehensive term for everything that Allah Azza wa Jal loves and is pleased with, inwardly and outwardly, whether they are the rights of Allah or the rights of mankind. Or the rights of mankind. So by this definition, it is more comprehensive than al-ibadah. Because ibadah is a comprehensive term for everything Allah loves and is pleased with. And in those acts of worship, as they relate to acts of worship. Bir has more of an emphasis upon both the rights of Allah and the rights of the servants. Even though those are all types of ibadah also. He said, and a taqwa in this place. What does that indicate to you? It indicates to you that taqwa has a different meaning elsewhere. Taqwa in this place is a comprehensive term for abandoning everything that Allah and His Messenger hate, whether outwardly or inwardly. So here, when you get bir and taqwa in the same sentence, when you get them separately, they mean separate things. When you put them, or they mean this, they, they have a, like a, a comprehensive meaning. When you put them together, al-bir is everything good, and al-taqwa is avoiding everything bad. Taqwa, when it comes on its own, includes al-bir. And these are from the names. When they come together, they go apart, and when they go apart, they come together. What does it mean when they come together, they go apart? When they go apart, they come together. When they come together, they go apart. When they are found in the same sentence, they have different meanings. And when they go apart, they come together. So when they're found in separate sentences, they each mean the meaning of the other or similar to the meaning of the other. So when Allah commands you to do al-bir, this includes doing everything good and avoiding everything bad. And when Allah commands you to have taqwa, this means doing everything good and avoiding everything bad. But when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands you to have al-birr wa taqwa, al-birr is everything good and al-taqwa is avoiding everything bad. And very briefly, Al-Imam al-Sa'di mentioned that this includes doing it yourself and it includes telling other people to do it. Doing it yourself and telling other people to do it. I.e. do not help each other, cooperate with each other in sin. Wal-Udwan, which is, yani sin relates to what is between you and Allah. And Al-Udwan relates, relates between what is you, with, between you and the rest of mankind. So do not help each other in sinning in that which is between you and Allah, and do not help each other in transgressing in that which is between you and the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether it is oppression or anything, uh, anything else. وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ i.e. Allah is severe in punishment upon the one who disobeys him and the one who openly goes against his the sanctity of those things that he told you to, to, uh, to respect the sanctity of. So 
be careful to avoid the sins so that you do not end up receiving this severe punishment, whether in this world or in the next. This ayah is also, this part of the ayah is also extremely important because it is a comprehensive prohibition for working together in anything which is sinful or which is oppressive to other people. So people say, for example, I'm not drinking alcohol and I'm not selling alcohol, but I deliver alcohol as part of my job. I mean, some people have this job. I deliver alcohol from one place to another. And it gets put in the back of the truck and I drive the truck from one place, but I don't sell it. And the truck has other things in it. I don't sell it and I don't buy it and I don't drink it. We say that your job is haram. Because Allah said, Do not help each other. Do not provide any support to each other in sinning or any support to each other in transgressing against the rights of other people. So if you are transporting alcohol from one place to another, you are helping people to be able to drink it. You are facilitating people to be able to drink it by taking it for them from a warehouse to the place where it is drunk or the place where it is sold. This is not permissible because this is cooperating with each other in sin and transgression. And this is one of the ayat you see quoted the most in fatawa. In this ayah, you see it quoted so many times in fatawa, in, in people give, in the scholars when they give fatawa, when they give a fatwa. Because it is so comprehensive in establishing basic rules that helping other people to do something haram is haram. And so it is forbidden for us to help and support other people to do haram, even if you don't do that haram, even if you don't do that haram yourself. And of course that has rules, it's not absolute. Because someone might say, okay, but me uh, living here, then I give money to this person and then they go and spend it on this and my, the worker in my business, he might, uh, the owner of my business that I give money to, he might have a riba-based loan and he might go and spend his money on riba. It doesn't work like that because the Prophet used to trade with the Jews and the Jews were neck deep in riba. Yet he used to trade with them, he used to give them money in return for goods. So there are some, any, there are some, there are some limits to that. You can't take it seven, eight steps in the future and say, I go to a shop and I pay something and then in that shop, the manager of that shop will then go and take the money from his salary and with his salary he will then go and buy alcohol so I should not go to that shop? No, because the Prophet ﷺ used to trade with the Jews who were known for these, these haram things and yet he still bought and sold from them. He did not have a problem with that. But still, there are some, as soon as it is a direct cooperation in sin where you are actually facilitating something and you don't have an evidence for that action from the sunnah, then this falls under the ayah. So again, it's about understanding that the ayat of Allah are not one ayah. And you have to take the ayah with, its, with the sunnah, with the exceptions, with the rules. Okay. Now we come to tafsir ibn Kathir. Now in tafsir ibn Kathir, I want to focus on the bits we couldn't get from tafsir al-Sa'di. So where, did we, where were we left with some... Uh, uh, some... Uh, not confusion, but where were we left with some outstanding issues to deal with? Let me find my, where's my tafsir? 
So first of all, when Ibn Kathir starts the surah, he starts by talking about the revelation. How was Surah Al-Ma'idah revealed? And he mentions a number of weak hadith, which mentioned that Surah Al-Ma'idah was revealed in one single goal to the Prophet It was not revealed in, in, in pieces or in portions. As far as I know, the, the narrations for this are all weak, but there are many of them. Perhaps it could be said that supporting together, they give some evidence for that. And that the camel of the Prophet fell down because of the weight of, uh, of Surah Al-Ma'idah, when Surah Al-Ma'idah was revealed uh, to the Prophet There is another uh, narration which also tells us that Surah Al-Ma'idah and uh, Surah Al-Fatih إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ were revealed at the same time or at a similar time. And we know that Surah Al-Ma'idah was late in revelation. We know that for sure because it talks about the time when the Muslims had control over the routes to Makkah and control over who enters the, the, the Haram, uh, the, uh, the Bayt al-Haram, the, the Kaaba and the Haram and so on. So we know from this clearly that Surah Al-Ma'idah was late in its revelation towards the, in terms of, uh, or at least parts of it. And parts of it may have been revealed before that, unless, depending on whether this hadith is, is true, that it was revealed in one go. So we wanted to look at some particular issues. Uh, first of all, Ibn Kathir, he mentions in Ya Ayyuhalladheena Amanu that a man came to Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. And uh, that it was said, uh, or that Ibn Mas'ud said, if you hear Allah Azza wa Jal say, Ya Ayyuhalladheena Amanu, then Give it your ear and pay attention to it. Because it is either something good that he is commanding you to do or something evil that he is forbidding you to do. And he talks for a long time about Ya Ayyuhalladina. Ya Ayyuhalladina Aman. Uh, we wanted to go specifically to Awfu Bil Uqud quickly. We'll just cover a couple of points on that. He said, it's narrated from Zayd ibn Aslam, Awfu bil uqud. The uqud are six. The promise or the, the obligations you have to Allah and the obligations of the oaths that you make, like when you swear an oath to something, and the obligations of business, and the obligations of trade, and the obligations of nikah, and the obligations of Al uh, and when you make when you make a, an oath or when you make a promise, do you think when you hear that 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 is that that covers every kind of responsibility? It doesn't cover every kind of responsibility, but it's not contradictory to what we've read in Tafsir al-Sa'd. It doesn't contradict it. What it does is it just gives us an example of. You know that, that, that 
Zayd ibn Aslam, he's trying to give you a comprehensive example. So he said, you know, six rights, the right of Allah, the right of, uh, or six rights that are mentioned in the Quran, maybe. The right of Allah, the right of the promise that you swear by, and the right of the oath you make, the right of business, and the right of buying and selling, and the right of nikah, and the, the promises of nikah, and so on. And some of them mentioned they are five. From them are the oath that you make in Jahiliyyah and uh, different kind of uh, business transactions or partnerships that you enter into and so on. So let's see what Ibn Kathir first of all says about Bahimatul An'am. He says, they are the camel and the cow and the sheep. This was said by Al-Hasan and Qatada and more than one. And Ibn Jarir said, this is what is, or this is what is understood, or this is what the Arabs understand by this word. And Ibn Umar and Ibn Abbas and others gave this ayah as a permissibility of eating the calf that is found dead in the stomach of its mother when it is slaughtered. And this has a hadith to support it from the sunnah. And in other words, it's not just the ayah that supports it, but there is a hadith to support it from, uh, from the sunnah. Uh, in, uh, including uh, the hadith that the slaughter of the uh, and when you slaughter the, the calf and you, you slaughter the mother and you slaughter that you find the calf to be dead in the in the stomach of the mother when you slaughter the calf is this the slaughter for the mother is the same as the slaughter for the calf There were another couple of issues that we wanted to take from this. Okay. The issue of Ash-Shahr al-Haram. So he says about Ash-Shahr al-Haram, the Sha'air Allah are his sacred things, meaning do not make the things that Allah has made haram halal. And that's what Ibn Kathir says, فَلَا تُحِلُّوا شَعِرَ Allah. Do not make the things that Allah has made haram to be halal. And for this reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَلَا الشَّهْرَ الْحَرَامِ Meaning, the forbidden acts within the shahr al-haram. Showing its honor and its greatness in the sight of Allah. And ab abandon those things that Allah forbade, such as beginning fighting, any fighting when you start the fighting and you're not allowed to start the fighting you can respond to fighting in the in the sacred months but you can't start the fighting and avoiding the haram things then he gives the, he gives the tafsir of the, of the of the quran for this and tafsir of the quran with the quran they ask you about fighting in the sacred months 
say fighting in it is a major sin. And he mentions the ayah in Surah At-Tawbah. And he said in Sahih Bukhari, from the hadith of Abi Bakr, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said in Hajjat al-Wida' Regarding the, uh, he said that time has come back to that which it has, which that which it was when Allah created the heavens and the earth. Meaning that the mushrikeen used to lengthen and shorten the the year according to what they wanted, and they used to make the months sometimes less and sometimes more, and they used to change the sacred months in order to be able to fight people when they weren't supposed to fight them. So the Prophet ﷺ said, "Time has gone back to." The time that it was when Allah created the heavens and the earth. And the sunnah is 12 months. From them, four are. Uh, from them, three back to back are uh, haram. Dhul Ki'dah and Dhul Hijjah and Muharram. And Rajab. Which comes in between. Which, uh, which comes in between uh, Jumada and Sha'ban. So the sacred months. Three of them are all together, Dhul Qi'dah, Dhul Hijjah, and Muharram, and then Rajab, which comes uh, in the middle. He said, and this indicates that they remain to be, they, Ibn Kathir says, this, remain, this indicates in this hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, that they remain haram as they were, they remain haram up to this time of ours. He said, and this is the opinion of a group from the Salaf. A group of the Salaf, they held that they remain haram. What is their evidence they remain haram? That the Prophet ﷺ in Hajjat al-Wida'ata, almost the end of his prophethood, told us that they remain to be haram. Okay. As for Ali ibn Abi Talha and ibn Abbas, with regard to the statement, وَلَا الشَّهْرُ haram. Uh, he, then he goes on to talk about this. He said, and the majority said that this is mansukh and that it is permissible to kill and fight in the shahr al-haram. And they used as the evidence for this, فَإِذَنْ سَلَخَ الْأَشْفُرُ الْحُرُمْ Meaning that those months, once they passed, in, and after the ayah in Surah At-Tawbah, once those months had passed, that's it. And after that, it is permissible to, it is permissible to fight, and that it is mansukh. So that the ayah is no longer the ayah regarding fighting in the in, in the force in the sacred months is no longer valid. The sacred months themselves remain uh, remain sacred, but that the there is no longer a prohibition in fighting in the sacred months. Meaning, then Allah said in Surah At-Tawbah, Then kill the polytheists wherever you find them. And Allah did not say kill the polytheists wherever you find them, except in the Ashar al-Hurra. So the months remain sacred, but the fighting in them has been made permissible after it was made haram. This is the opinion of the majority. And uh, Imam Abu Ja'far, Note, uh, narrated ijma' 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made permissible fighting the people of shirk in Ashur al and the rest of the months of the year. Likewise, uh, the one who, likewise, the permissibility of uh, of, uh, of fighting against, like the mushrik, for example, who takes a prisoner of war in the in the in the sacred months, that it is permissible to fight against them. Uh, and he mentions any uh, other things that are accepted in that time. He says at the end, and Ibn Kathir says at the end, this issue deserves further, and it will have further research, and it will be mentioned in another place. And in other words, if you want more detail, it's almost like he's saying, if you want more detail about this, go to the ayah in Surah Al-Tawbah. Because this ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah is not the place to discuss this in detail. So first of all, he said that a group of the Salaf held the opinion that the Ashur al-Hurum remain as they are. A group of them held they are still sacred, but fighting is permitted in them like it is permitted in other months. And he says this issue needs, re- has been researched further in another place in more detail. Meaning that Surah Al-Tawbah. When we get to Surah Al-Tawbah and the ayah, فَإِذًا سَلَفَ الْأَشْهُرُ الْحُرُمْ فَقَتُوا الْمُشْرِكِينَ حَيْثُ وَجَدْتُمُوهُمْ When the sacred months of uh, are over, then fight the mushrikeen wherever you find them, then this indicates, or at this place, Ibn Kathir will discuss the issue in more detail. And he mentions that some of the scholars declared there to be ijma'. However, this ijma'i, mean, there is some, any fihi nadar, there is some like debate over whether there is really ijma' on this topic. Because in, in reality, there are some of the salaf who held that the fighting in the sacred months remains uh, remains to be valid, uh, the prohibition remains valid. But in any case, the ayah from Surah Al-Ma'idah is not really, doesn't really change because the meaning of Surah Al-Ma'idah is respect the sacred months. And this is by consensus of the scholars that it is still remains required for every Muslim to respect the sacred months. But the issue is whether fighting is forbidden in it or not forbidden in it. And the majority are of the opinion that fighting is not prohibited anymore after the ayah in Surah At-Tawbah and Ibn Kathir said we will discuss this issue in more detail over there because here it's just the beginning of the mentioning of it in other words later on you will find much much more detail on this topic uh, elsewhere so this is also from the methodology of Ibn Kathir that he will often like even Ya Ayyuhalladheena Amanu he touched upon it here even in some detail but there is there are areas there is there are places elsewhere that you will find more detail. And that is why we learned another benefit from dealing with Ibn Kathir, which is that if you want to get the full benefit from it, and generally books of tafsir in general, you should look at every area where this topic is mentioned. You want to study the issue, is it allowed or not allowed to fight in the sacred months? Then you should study this in Surah Al-Ma'idah and read what he said in Surah At-Tawbah and read what he said uh, elsewhere in the Quran. Maybe if it is mentioned in Surah Al-Hajj and so on, you should go to each place 
And at each place you should, at each place you should look and see what the tafsir is in that area. Because you're not looking at the tafsir of just one ayah, you're looking at the tafsir of a concept. And what is the tafsir of? The concept of fighting in the sacred months. And so you'll find that in Surah Al-Tawbah and Surah Al-Ma'idah and probably Surah Al-Baqarah as well. There will be some mention of it in Surah Al-Baqarah. Uh, and likewise, there'll be some mention of it perhaps in Surah Al-Hajj and there'll be some... And so you read each place so that you get a comprehensive tafsir because the, the, the Mufassir will not mention everything every time again and again and again. Usually the first time or if not the first time, which is again something you might learn, that when you go into a book like Ibn Kathir, you find that the first time, you don't find it. And you went to the first time, he said, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, and you don't find, you don't find the tafsir. That may be because he mentions it in the most relevant place, not the first place, but the place which is the most relevant to talk, to, to talk about it in. So you may not always find the tafsir in the first place of the book, you may well find the tafsir in the most relevant place. So here, which ayah is most relevant regarding the abrogation? Surah At-Tawbah. Because this is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is said to have abrogated the prohibition of fighting in the sacred months. So this is where you're more likely to find it. Because it's more relevant there than in Surah Al-Baqarah. It's mentioned in Surah Al-Baqarah. But in Surah Al-Baqarah, it's mentioned in a a very general way and in Surah Al-Ma'idah in a general way and in Surah Al-Tawbah in a very specific way. So you may find more information in Surah Al-Tawbah but you will need to go through each one to get the comprehensive understanding understanding of the issue. I think that's inshallah enough because we have some announcements to make inshallah. So please if I could just ask everyone to just give me five minutes before we we go before so we get to make some announcements. Uh, first of all, inshallah ta'ala, uh, next week will be the start of module two. I think Abdullah is going to come and give some announcements about that inshallah. The exam will, for this term, for this module will also be next week inshallah. Same as usual. Before next week you'll get your results of your previous exam. As for the results of the uh, the assignment, this will take a little longer because naturally the assignments take a little bit longer to mark than the other ones. So probably that will, we'll aim for that before the end of the next term, inshallah. That before the next assignment is due, we'll aim to, we'll aim to get you the marks for this assignment, inshallah. Uh, the topic for next time, we're going to start with Aqidah and then we're going to go on to Usul al-Fiqh. We're going to try to go more slowly because my experience in this one, a little bit too fast. In fact, I need like... Quite, it's been too fast really to cover all of the points we wanted to cover but that's okay as we get used to the, the students and we get used to the way that we're teaching and we get used to the books then we can slow things down so the plan is I've, I've cut the material that I wanted to cover in module 2 in half and half of it will be covered in module 3 so I've really like slowed it down a bit inshallah but that's okay because we were already we originally planned for four modules and now we have eight so we have space to spread it out inshallah um, I think those are the main things I wanted to mention but I think Abdullah is going to come and make some announcements so please do stay here and give him your attention because it may be some issues relating to administration of the course and things you have to do
So inshallah, that's clear for everybody that module two starts next week. We've decided six to eight because to be honest, uh, what's happening now with Fajr time, I mean, you can finish your adhkar and your everything by 5.15, 5.10, 5.15. So again, to, it just, it doesn't really help. You get half an hour's extra sleep, 45 minutes extra sleep, you come and you, you just, it just gets disrupted. So it's better we finish early and then give people time and if they want to go to sleep after that before Jumu'ah, they can, inshallah. So we'll make it six till eight. Um, I just want to advise everyone again, just so that everyone can remember that I said it to them, that all the information you need is on the Kalima website, as Abdullah said. A lot of people have a tendency to email me to ask me something that's already on the website, or they'll say, I didn't know we were going to have an exam, or I didn't know the course was going to be like this, or I didn't know we were going to start at this time, or I didn't know we'd be doing it on this date. Everything is on the website uh, and once again, I'll emphasize from my side that I don't deal with any course administration stuff. Any, I can't, like, I, we deliberately did it that way. So there's no shafa'a on my side for the students who didn't come or want to do something different or, you know, like, are not available for the exam. I don't have any shafa'a from my side. I can't intercede for you or give you marks or whatever. We did that very deliberately because otherwise it means that people who know me well and maybe see me more often would have an advantage over those people who don't and they would be able to say, okay, just, you know, you know that I know this, just give me the marks and whatever. So no, we said, like, we'll make it like a proper, a proper course. In a proper course, your university teacher or your, you know, your school teacher does not have the ability to choose what the exam board gives you as a mark. So inshallah, the same principle works here. Uh, the admin is being dealt with by Kalima. Please do check the website first of all before you decide that you want to email and, and see what's going on. And uh, hopefully that is clear, inshallah. Quickly, a few questions, but you guys, whoever wants to leave is welcome. Regarding tafsir of the ayah, to prevent people from doing the haram, I found the packet of cigarettes in someone's shoe in the masjid. Is it allowed for me to take the packet of cigarettes and throw it away? Allahu alam. I would, I would want to throw it away, but I would check the, I would check the fatwa before I did it because I don't want to tell you something that then later on is, is wrong. But my first reaction would be yes, we throw it away because there's no. I mean, this is harmful to the person. But you have to check the fatwa before you do it because you have to have knowledge before you do something. And I, don't, I can't say that I recall what the scholars said about this, any whether they said it is permissible or not permissible. Because it perhaps opens some cans of worms if you allow people to do that. I mean, like it might open some cans of worms as to what people think is halal and what people think is haram. And people might I mean, see things that, are, that they believe to be haram or whatever. And, they, and so there are some issues there. I would not give you an answer unless I, I check the what the scholars say about it. Uh, I, I think I have one question from the sisters, inshallah. Or maybe I have three. Let's see. Okay. Okay. Please guide us through the kind of questions on what areas of tafsir you'll be asking us on. Tafsir is a huge module. I'm trying to understand the concept. I'm really confused what to prepare for the exam. Well, it's... it's it's hard for me to do that, like really. I mean, I, I try to help you guys with whatever I can. I tell you what I'll try and do. I'll try and give you some help in the video that we release before the exam comes out, okay? Like I'll try to give you some help that I usually record a video almost every week. Some weeks I miss it, but almost every week I record a video. 
In the next video that we do, before the exam comes out, usually the video comes on Wednesday or Thursday, I'll give you a rough idea of some of the things that we'll ask. But generally, you have the tape, the taped recording. I'm not going to ask you something that is not in the tape. Okay, so if it's not in my tape, I'm not going to ask you about it. So whatever I'm going to ask you is going to be within that time, within the, the tape. Yeah, Tefsir is a huge module in of itself. I appreciate that. I will try and give you some tips and hints in the next video that we release, inshallah. The reason I don't want to give you now is that I haven't written the exam. And if I haven't written the exam, I might decide to change it in the exam and then tell you the exam is going to be like this and this and this. And then, subhanAllah, like I end up either giving you answers to the exam, so I've already give, I give you the questions that I'm going to ask, or I end up giving you something and then I change my mind about how the exam is going to be. So by the time I've done the exam, the video will be ready. And we'll, in the video, we'll give you some tips about the kind of way the exam will be, inshallah. Okay, uh, the issue of selling cosmetics. Is selling cosmetics an example of a ta'awun al-ithmi wal-udwan? Is selling cosmetics an example of cooperating in sin and uh, transgression? Cosmetics are clearly something that can be used for halal and can be used for Haram. Let me give you some examples of something a little bit easier because cosmetics sits in the middle. Let me give you an example that some, of something that could be halal but almost is certainly not halal. Uh, women's swimwear, like revealing swimwear for women. Okay? That woman could say, I'm only buying it to wear in my house in front of my husband. And we have a private pool that is locked inside of a building that nobody can see inside. And I'm only buying it for that. And the only person who will see me is my husband. Now, while that is possible, is that what is mutawakka? Is that what you expect is going to happen by selling any revealing swimwear to women any, in a shop? It's not what you expect. What you expect is that 99.99999% of those people who buy it are going to buy it too do haram with it okay what about generic now what about something on the other side like generic women's clothing that is something that is permissible because generic women's clothing women will buy it and wear it in the house women will buy it and wear it without hijab i mean that's down to the woman's responsibility not yours cosmetics sit somewhere in the middle because you fear that lots and lots and lots of people are going to use it for haram. But still, it's perfectly possible for people to use it for halal. And it's very reasonable for a woman to ask for cosmetics to be available for her to, to purchase. And that's like very reasonable because she is commanded to beautify herself for her husband. So cosmetics are an important part of that. There's nothing, nothing haram about selling a woman cosmetics that she's going to use, inshallah, like to beautify herself in front of her husband, or she wants to use to, in front of, uh, in a limited way, in front of other women. Like, for example, she wants to conceal some marks on her skin in front of some of the other women, so she puts something on. There's no harm in that. But it's, I guess it's down to the way that they are sold and the way that they are, the way that they are marketed. Um, and I think that comes down to also the issue of like selling knives. 
You know, you can sell knives in a way that encourages people to use them for cooking, and you can sell knives in a way that encourages people to use them for killing. So really, you have to look at the way that it's sold, the way the industry is. If you're stood in an industry where you're stood next to a big picture of a woman wearing cosmetics without hijab every day, and you're selling those cosmetics, this is clearly haram. But if somebody is in the business of making cosmetics and he makes or she makes the best effort to make sure that, you know, as much as possible, there is no encouragement to wear them outside, then I don't see that this is haram. This is an example of what women are allowed to buy and allowed to use. Uh, and it's not like the example of the swimwear where you know for a fact that everybody who buys it is wear, buying it to wear haram. And maybe once in 10 years, one woman will come who is not buying it for, the, for haram. So at the end of the day, I don't see it to be wrong to make and sell cosmetics, but it's the way that you make and sell them. And the industry may well be haram to be involved in the industry because parts of the industry may well be into like big pictures of women on the, you know, you go in the store, there's a big picture of a woman wearing cosmetics and they're flaunting and encouraging people to wear them, uh, to wear them outside. So I guess it depends on what you do and it depends on how you do it. But I'm not going to say that working in the cosmetics industry from beginning to end is haram. Because there is a need for that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala legislated, the permissibility of a woman beautifying herself for a husband. And none of the scholars considered cosmetics to be haram in of themselves. But down to the way you sell them and the way that you, you know, the way that you carry yourself about. Likewise, the people who wear, who sell women's clothing, for example, they sell women's clothing with a big picture of a woman outside in the park wearing the clothing without hijab this is a problem they sell the clothing in a way that is simply encouraging you know the lady comes in and she buys what she wants and this is a need women have a need for for these things so it's down to the way that you the way that they are sold and the kind of people market that they're targeted i mean if you're doing marketing for cosmetics and your whole target market is targeting women who are wearing cosmetics outside without uh, hijab and you target them and aim for them and and you know you you design your products and the shape and the colors everything for this purpose then clearly it is it is haram so this is a difficult a difficult one but one that you have to be honest with yourself about uh, about it inshallah person who asked me this question can ask me it in private, inshallah. And alhamdulillah, I think we have uh, explained uh, this issue well enough. And uh, anyone who wants to ask me about this, they can email me and ask me in private. Because I don't want to get into this sitting to be the whole sitting of who is right and who is wrong and who is deviant and who is not. And I made a statement and I stick by it, alhamdulillah. And uh, all I would add to that is, if somebody was good eight years ago, in eight years a lot can happen in eight years a person can leave Islam in eight years a person can change their opinions in eight years a person can go from being upright to being corrupt and so it's not because somebody was good eight years ago it's not valid that they're necessarily good uh, uh, today alhamdulillah and we don't make statements based on hawa we don't make statements based on uh, jealousy or based on uh, based on desires and wallah, the more people, every time I hear of somebody giving lectures and giving da'wah to the sunnah, wallahi, we're so happy. Wallahi, so happy. Wallahi, we make du'a for them. Because we are in desperate need. Yani if, 
it's not like we would be out of work if there's another person calling to the sunnah subhanallah and like that wallahi we need thousands and hundreds of thousands of du'at calling to the sunnah wallahi we need every single one but if one of them goes off track and starts to make evil statements statements rejecting huge parts of our belief and our aqidah and statements in which they clearly show their deviancy and their and their hatred for the sunnah and its people we're not going to stay quiet and say he was good eight years ago jazallahu khairan if you have someone who's causing a danger to the ummah you warn the ummah against them this is essential otherwise the ummah would have no protection for itself subhanallah and how could, if you have like somebody who is stealing children outside of a school you say he used to be good eight years ago so just leave him yani. and subhanallah and if somebody is causing danger to the ummah to the society the community then we warn the people against them so the people don't fall into the errors that they fell into and anyone who wants more clarification than that can send me an email and speak to me privately inshallah because i think it's we don't want to make these gatherings into this kind of like too much into this kind of discussion uh, and allah knows best so we'll the questions will take on the way out inshallah Allahu alam wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.